1: wherever you get your podcasts.
2: It's being called the most significant shipwreck discovery since the Titanic. In a deft use of deep-sea robotics, researchers have located the ship Endurance in dark and frigid Antarctic waters.
3: It was remarkably intact, standing proud of the seabed. You could clearly see the letters endurance in the back with the with the star.
2: For the first time in more than a century, we can see the vessel that set sail as part of the last hurrah of the heroic age of polar exploration, led by the explorer, Ernest Shackleton.
4: Put simply, he was trying to walk from coast to coast across the Antarctic continent, which had never been done before roughly speaking, 1,800 miles, of which around about half of that journey was over completely unknown territory.
2: How Shackleton and his crew survived the grueling expedition is this stuff of legend. But what drove him and his men to risk their lives and travel to such a remote place? Was it vanity or commercial interest? Or is there something of profound importance in exploration that extends beyond these motivations? This is Big Picture Science, produced at the SETI Institute, and I'm Seth Shostak.
1: I'm Molly Bentley. In this episode, a crew member from the expedition that found the Endurance describes how they did it. And we revisit the original 1915 Shackleton expedition, when the ship was lost, and what happened next. This episode is Finding Endurance.
2: As the 20th century opened, explorers were vying to be the first to reach Earth's North and South Poles, harsh and distant places no humans had ever visited. The South Pole was especially difficult, being 800 miles from the nearest open water. Today, Antarctic research stations are busy hubs supporting scientists from around the world, cruise ships, even ferry tourists to the continent.
1: But as the 20th century dawned, Antarctica was still largely unmapped an inhospitable, desolate continent of ice and snow, surrounded by ice-flecked seas. Exploring it required daring and fortitude. Travel to the continent was by ship, and traversing it was by dog sled or on foot. But several men were eager to try to reach the poles, and both poles were in play. Competition egged them on.
2: The Royal Navy officer, Robert Scott, attempted to reach the South Pole on the Discovery Expedition that took place between 1901 and 1904. They landed on McMurdo Sound in Antarctica, and from there attempted to reach the Pole on foot, but they were forced to turn back. But there
1: was another legendary explorer of this era, Ernest Shackleton.
4: Scott and Shackleton first met in 1901, 104 on the Discovery Expedition. They ended up not liking each other too much. Rivalry
1: helped fuel Shackleton's attempt to reach the pole. He was hoping to make it before Scott made a second attempt.
4: Shackleton was a very restless man, rather unfulfilled, and was always looking over the hill. Um, He wanted to be the first to reach the South Pole, got to within 97 nautical miles of it in 1909.
2: A cautious man, he didn't think he'd make it, so he turned around and went home. Meanwhile, the North Pole had been reached by two American explorers. So back in England, Shackleton started planning another assault on the South Pole.
4: And then, to his horror, discovered that Amundsen, the great Norwegian, had beaten him to the pole. And so he looked around for something else to do. And the thing to do for him was this wildly ambitious plan to walk across the continent. My name is Michael Smith. I'm an historian and author.
1: Shackleton organized a small group of men for the march across Antarctica, a traverse of 1,800 miles. To reach his starting point at the edge of the continent, he bought a sturdy wooden sailing ship he named
4: Endurance. Endurance was a wooden ship around about 300 tons and it was built to spec by a Norwegian shipbuilder, a very specialist uh, company. It had sails because you couldn't carry so much coal basically, so en- anything to reduce the amount of coal you could carry
2: on board were 28 men including shackleton participants in what was grandly called the imperial trans-antarctic expedition
4: they sailed from the uk on the very day that britain declared war on germany they disappeared into the ice and were not seen again for uh, nearly two years and during that time they were the only people in the world who didn't know what was going on in the world
2: in december 1914 the endurance eased out of its final port of call, a whaling station called Grit in the British territory of South Georgia. Rounding the island, the ship headed toward the edge of the Weddell Sea, a major indentation in the Antarctic coastline. There, it had to sail through the treacherous pack ice.
4: The aim of, of taking the ship into the ice was they were warned not to go, but the aim was, was to try and reach land on the Antarctic continent and then set up a base and then begin this long trek across the unknown territory.
1: Some would call the Endurance Expedition the last gasp of the heroic age of exploration at the bottom of the world. If so, it was a memorable gasp. But in the end, the sea ice would be its undoing. Michael Smith tells us that story.
4: They got as far as the uh, the tip of the Weddell Sea, having been warned not to go. The Weddell Sea, just for background purposes, is like a giant cement mixer. It's a, a cylindrical shaped sea and the ice goes around in a huge circle and it grinds your ship. The danger to these vessels was the movement of the ice, not the ice itself, the constant movement of the ice and it breaks up and begins to smash your ship, which it did to Endurance. They, were, of course, were going to what's
2: known as Vachel Bay. Uh, that was a little you know, indentation there in Antarctica, and that's where they were going to park the Endurance, if you will, offload the supplies, and march across the continent. They could see this thing, at least according to some reports, it was about 70 miles away, but they couldn't get to it. They came, became beset in the ice. So they eventually had to abandon the ship. I mean, did they, did they think the ship was really doomed at this point? Or did they think if they just waited long enough that uh, enough of the ice would kind of uh, subside a bit and they could sail out of there?
4: This was a long, slow execution. It took 10 months for the ship to sink. Um, and during that time, the ship listed at incredible angles and eventually was crushed and sank. But it enters the Weddell Sea in January 1915. Um, They abandoned the ship by October 1915, and and they sit on the ice in their tents, watching the ship slowly sinking beneath the ice. And just for reference here, they would be well over a thousand miles from anywhere. Nobody knew they were there. They had no radio. Nobody was coming to get them even if they could get into the Weddell Sea. So they sat and watched, 28 men sat and watched the ship sinking, knowing that that was their lifeline out of the Antarctic ice.
2: So it's a little hard to imagine, but it must have been terrifying if you really stop to think about it. They're sitting there on the ice. The ship uh, off to one side is slowly getting crushed and will sink. And of course, they don't have radio, though radio did exist, but they didn't have uh, the equipment to say, hey, look, we're stuck on this ice sheet. And, you know, because of the movement of this ice, eventually it's going to break up and melt and we're going to be dumped into the uh, into the ocean. There was there was nothing like that. And yet they seem to remain fairly stoic about it all.
4: Well, one has to remember that there were 28 men on board Endurance when they decamped and lived on the ice. Not all of them were explorers. There were a few men like Shackleton and Frank Wilde, Tom Crean, uh, Worsley. These were tough guys. The rest of them were ordinary sailors who'd been recruited in Buenos Aires to take the ship down to the Antarctic. There was an artist on board. There was one man stowed away. There were young scientists who were going out for a bit of field adventure. They weren't all explorers, and so they had to come to terms with their incredible isolation. And this, of course, is where Shackleton rose to the occasion. He was a great and inspirational leader. And I mentioned earlier that they had that the, uh, the Weddell Sea is like a cement mixer, but you move the whole time. You, it's not visible to you. But in total, whilst they were on the ice, from the moment the ship was trapped to the moment that they left the ice, they drifted for 2,000 miles in a gigantic semicircle.
2: So they're out on this ice floe in a giant gyre, if you will. They're, they're moving clockwise around the Weddell Sea It's sl- in slow motion. There's nobody that's going to come rescue them. What happened?
4: Well, Shackleton's great skill, his natural skills as a leader, held them all together. And what he instilled in the men was a hope that they would get out of it he gave them hope they would live and for months they drifted in this huge semicircle and by april 1916 they had drifted to the north to the edges of the weddell sea by which time the ice is beginning to break up so they launched their three small lifeboats packed with food and the 28 men and made in a very faltering journey to the nearest piece of landfall they could find, which is a desolate, awful place called Elephant Island.
2: There's no settlement on Elephant Island. I mean, they weren't, they weren't you know, the camp for whalers or anything
4: like that. There is nothing. It's just a lump of rock sticking out of the Southern Ocean. It's a uh, um, very, very windy, hostile place. It had two things going for it, though. One, it was dry land, but also had water from the icebergs. They could melt the water and drink and there was a bit of wildlife so they were able to survive. They had food, relatively speaking, they had enough food, but they were living on the margin. Of the 28 men who made it to Elephant Island, roughly a third of them, and I'm using Shackleton's words now, were off their heads because of the, the isolation. He realised they were not going to make a long boat journey maybe a thousand miles is the nearest port of call and so he decided to take six men with him and sail to South Georgia which is roughly speaking 800 miles away and fetch rescue that meant leaving 22 men on the island to fare for themselves while he and the five other guys sailed in an open boat across the southern ocean it is quite the most remarkable piece of navigation in the history of maritime exploration. And it took them 17 days to reach South Georgia. And when they got there, they landed on the south side of South Georgia, which is relevant because all the ships from the whaling profession were moored on the north side, but they couldn't possibly sail around and they were physically shattered. And so Shackleton decided that Himself and two other men, Tom Crean and Frank Worsley, would walk across the island, which no one had ever done before. And so they walked without a tent or a sleeping bag for a day and a half and made it to the whaling station, recruited a ship, and eventually, after four and a half months, they got back to Elephant Island where all the men were still alive.
2: It's one of the most incredible stories of adventure. Uh, that uh, I am aware of, and uh, and yet a lot of people, even at the time, didn't seem to know much about it. They knew about Robert Scott and his uh, ill-fated expedition to the South Pole. I mean, why was it that Shackleton wasn't seen as the hero he was? Was it the First World War? People had other things on their minds?
4: You have to remember that Shackleton died in 1922 on another Antarctic expedition, as it happens, and he pretty much disappeared from view even though he'd done four expeditions, he really wasn't very popular. The British establishment didn't like him very much. He was Irish, therefore he wasn't particularly popular in England. He uh, was a bit of a chancer, a bit of a ladies' man. Um, and um, the establishment in Britain put all its money, if you like, on the dice called Robert Scott. And so Scott was the, was the national martyr, Uh, And Shackleton was kind of elbowed aside. And it was for well over 50 years, 60 years, that he just drifted to the margins of history, even in Britain. And there were hardly any books written about him. He wasn't noticed. And it wasn't until the 1980s onwards that people began to reassess this incredible character and to also assess uh, what he had done, and in particular his leadership. And as you may know, his leadership style is now taught in American business schools.
2: Finding the ship. Michael, you know, there, there were valuable things on the ship still that presumably went to the bottom with the ship, like uh, photos and movies that they had shot, but that they couldn't carry with them on the rest of their journey. I wonder what's
4: the value, from your point of view, what's the value of seeing the ship now? I think the value is more aesthetic than anything else. You have to, again, bear in mind that it took 10 months for endurance to sink. And as a result, They took off the ship all the things they needed to survive. There were no luxuries whatsoever. The only thing that mattered was what kept you alive. So anything else that was left on the ship was considered superfluous to that main aim. So yeah, there will be stuff on board, maybe the ship's wheel and the ship's bell, that sort of totem, if you like. But the overwhelming majority of the interesting stuff was taken off so that they could survive. All the written records survived, the film survived, and Frank Hurley, who was the photographer, great Australian photographer, one of the great photojournalists of the 20th century, he kept around about 150 glass plates of the images, and that's why these images still survive today and are, in my view, the greatest photographs of Antarctic exploration ever taken.
2: Incredible. Well, finally, Michael, you know, If you had to characterize Shackleton's talents for Polar Expedition, one was his ability to keep everybody, you know, looking on the bright side, if you will, what would you say? Was he tougher in the face of harsh conditions? Was he more sympathetic to his men? Did he simply make better decisions?
4: Shackleton was a great leader. He was an inspirational figure. Men would walk through a brick wall for him if asked. Um, But also, he never took unnecessary risks he was surprisingly cautious. He was also extremely good at improvisation. And that's not to say that he made it up as he went along, but he adapted. He adapted to the conditions. If you were looking at a comparison between Scott and Shackleton, Scott did everything by the book. Everything was planned to the last detail. Shackleton would alter his plans if, if he wanted to. There's that very famous quote uh, when he came back from nearly getting to the South Pole, 97 miles from the pole. And his wife said to him, why did you turn back when you were so near? And he said, I thought you would rather have a live donkey than a dead lion.
2: Michael Smith, thank you very much for speaking with us.
4: It's been a pleasure.
1: Michael Smith is a historian and author who has written extensively about polar exploration. In February 2022, a team of Antarctic researchers and explorers located endurance. How they did, more than a century after it sank, is the story
2: next. This episode is Finding Endurance on Big Picture Science. Thanks to Shackleton's leadership abilities and personal grit, and despite all the dangers, he and every one of his men survived and eventually returned to England.
1: Seth, let's pause here and give the last word on this part of the story to Shackleton himself because we have a clip of a rare archival audio recording of Shackleton's voice. This is a wax cylinder recording and it's called My Polar Year. Do you have any wax cylinder recordings?
2: Uh, I have their successor. It was a Bakelite cylinder. It looks like a wax cylinder, but it's not wax.
1: Okay. Well, this is an old recording technology. And Shackleton made a recording in 1909 after he attempted to reach the South Pole. But his his summary here could apply to his 1914 Expedition too.
5: And thus we went along, and thus we returned, having done a work that has resulted... Without in great advantage to science and for the first time returning without the loss of a single human life.
2: You know, Molly, that is so interesting. It really, you know, it makes the history real. I mean, to see photos of him, that's a treat too, but to actually hear his voice. Well, he didn't lose anyone on the 1914 1915 expedition either, but he did lose his ship. By 1915, The ship that had brought his expedition to Antarctica was two miles beneath their feet in the Weddell Sea. And it was, of course, natural to think that no one would ever set eyes on it again. But the lure of the White Continent has never ended.
3: My name is Christian Katlein. I'm a CS scientist at the Alfred Wegener Institute. And I have been working on CS the last 10 years. And now I'm a robotic specialist with the building of the new German research icebreaker.
2: He's a specialist in sea ice and an expert in robotics. Both skills came in handy recently.
3: Well, it's been hailed as one of the greatest shipwreck discoveries of our lifetime. Uh, Sir Ernest Shackleton's ship Endurance has been located some 107 years after it was lost off the coast of Antarctica. Now, the ship... Christian
1: Catline was a member of Endurance 22, the expedition that set out in early 2022 to find the original Endurance. The international group, which included marine archaeologists, engineers and other scientists, all headed into the pack ice in the Weddell Sea, a formidable challenge even for a modern icebreaker like the one they use, the Agulis
2: II. Using a pair of underwater drones with cameras and sonar, the team began a search in a grid pattern of the seabed, and they had some navigational help from those who had been there before, members of Shackleton's crew. Historian Michael Smith.
4: Shackleton luckily had a wonderful gift. He was extraordinary at picking the right man for the job, and he took with him some great navigators And so they took regular readings of where they were with chronometers and compasses. And in fact, when the ship was found, it was within four miles of where they said it would be. That's how accurate their charts were.
1: Let's find out how the team tracked down the endurance and what they saw when they did. So Christian, if we had gone looking for you on this icebreaker, where would we have found you?
3: During my work time, you would have been finding me on the bridge of the icebreaker, uh, sitting at our little monitor where we get all information in uh, from satellite data, model predictions, etc. And
1: you're there on the bridge with a parka hat, <laughs> gloves,
3: <laughs> the whole thing? The bridge is actually well heated. I mean, uh, that's a nice thing about modern icebreakers. We are not anymore like Shackleton had to stand outside on his steering wheel and, and had it really cold No, And in modern ships, you have a, a warm, heated bridge. So it's a very comfortable uh, working environment.
1: This has been described as the world's most difficult shipwreck search. And I wonder if you could give us some ideas why that was and describe some of the conditions you faced out there. I know you had the, the constantly shifting sea ice was one of them.
3: And just the fact that you need a, a ice-breaking vessel to go to Antarctica and then all this technology also needs to endure conditions. We are down to minus 20 degrees at at some point. Uh, The vessel got stuck for a few hours at some point. So 20 degrees,
1: I should say 20 degrees Celsius.
3: Yes, exactly. That's
1: very, very cold.
3: (laughs) Exactly. I don't know what it is in Fahrenheit at the moment, but it's, uh, yeah, it's, it's really cold, especially when you have unprotected robots standing on the back deck and then your your winch electronics start being cold.
1: So lest anyone think that you were inside that heated deck the whole time, you were in fact exposed to the elements. I wonder if you could give us an overview of the sort of technology and the sort of science that went into this expedition.
3: So on the ice physics side, we had several real-time measurement measuring systems so for example we measured the ice thickness that we were going through real time with the ship for navigating we used advanced radar satellites and then we can identify open water areas and cracks in the ice and make the traveling of the ship through the ice uh, much more easy and when we then were over the point uh, of interest that we wanted to survey then uh, yeah we deployed these what we call hybrid ROVs or AUVs uh, standing for remotely operated vehicles that's a basically car sized diving robot and this one also had a, a thin fiber optic cable up to 10 kilometers in length that could send data back in real time and that is very crucial when you're looking for a shipwreck because With a traditional approach, you would just throw the vehicle overboard, wait a day until it comes back and then look at all the data. So we had real time data up to the surface and surveyors constantly looking at the data to try to see if there is anything that is not normal on the seafloor and then directly go and investigate and see if, uh, yeah, if the wreck is there.
1: So Christian, were you using visual cues? You were using cameras? Or were you also using sonar to try to find the ship?
3: So uh, we were mostly actually relying on a low frequency sonar, something called side scan sonar. So basically you can imagine the vehicle was going about 70 meters above the seabed and then looking to both sides with like a, like a broom pattern, sweeping uh, the seafloor, looking 800 meters to each side.
1: And w- would the signal for a ship be subtle? Or you have to, you know, sort of interpret it, or would it be a very clear signal?
3: We had a very flat seafloor, so everybody was expecting that that it should be a very clear signal, and we should see it. But still, uh, interpreting sonar is very challenging, and also we didn't know if it was really going to be a strong signal. Once we found something that looked interesting, then the vehicle would go closer and change the frequency of that sonar so that we would get much higher resolution. And then later on, if there's something that is uh, of looks of of interest, then we were changing to to cameras to actually verify what it actually is. Quite sometimes we actually just found some rocks.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Um, I wonder now if you could describe the moment of discovery, how your team knew or thought you knew that you had found endurance.
3: So when the ship or the wreck was actually discovered, I personally was, was out on the ice doing some measurements and a bit more of a, of a leisurely walk as well, enjoying Antarctica. And, uh, I was however, pretty confident that because by that we had already searched a large portion of the search window that. I was suspecting it to be somewhere in that area. So I was very confident that when we go on the ice, there might be something happening. So I came back to the ship. And as my normal working place on the ship was the bridge, I immediately uh, went up. I looked at the the track from, from the AUV and I knew they found it. You clearly see it on the track line, how they have been deviating from from their planned track and, and going uh, back and forth around a, a specific target in a different depth. So there were clear clues that we had found it. And then that dinner, uh, just uh, one of the ROV pilots who had been sitting there seeing it on, on camera, he just bursted out to, <laughs> to the people there. So uh, uh, that's where most people on the, on the ship actually got the good news that, that we actually found it. And they all gathered us actually in the big auditorium on the vessel and showed us the footage and that was just just amazing. I mean, we were all blown away by by the great footage that that we had and uh, yeah, that we after the long search, actually had managed to find the target.
1: please say more about the ship, what it looked like. Many of us have now seen those photos. It was remarkably intact. What else did you notice when you were looking at those photos?
3: Yeah, I mean. It was remarkably intact, standing proud of the seabed. You could clearly see the letters endurance in the back with the star. Uh, you could see the, the steering wheel. Uh, most of the stern was was pretty much intact. When you w- went a bit forward, there was uh, quite some damage, partly from the ice and also from the impact on the seafloor. But the, the general structure of the vessel is, is completely intact. And there's tons of artifacts lying around the vessel in the vessel and yeah so far we have also only seen preliminary image data because the novel imaging systems that we use they take a lot of time for processing but just the first glimpses that we've seen they they look crazy
1: <laughs> what kind of artifacts
3: what we were looking at is mostly what was lying around on deck and already in the released video material you can see some some plates lying around there you can you can see a shoe Actually, it might have been from Frank Wild, uh, according to geograph uh, to the historians.
1: Incredible! It must have given you the chills. I mean, the chills weren't just coming from the chilly air, but it's like it's like finding a ghost ship.
3: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, nobody really expected the ship to be that well preserved, I mean, uh, especially if you look into the into the wooden construction of the ship. Like you can perfectly see everything, you can see the planks, you can see the, the individual fastenings of the planks. And if you look at the typical shipwreck, I mean, there's lots of marine growth and it's sometimes very hard to, to even see that there is a shipwreck. It's incredible.
1: We can imagine that it just went straight, it just went straight down and then hit
3: yeah it basically uh it basically did a bit of like like the titan- titanic most people know how the titanic uh sank that it it lifted the the stern out of the water and then then sank down under under the ocean and uh, endurance uh, is was observed to do something very similar that basically uh the stern li- lifted out of the water a lot more slower and then she just slid down bow first and then just settled down
1: I wonder if we could say more about why the sunken wooden ship is so well preserved. I mean, luckily, no wood-eating organisms down there, but what is the role of the cold water in preserving the ship?
3: So, yeah, I mean, this this cold water is, is preserving the ship very well because there's not many organisms uh, living in there. There's uh, nothing that really deteriorates the wood. There's uh, no wood-boring uh, worms. So processes in general are very slow at, at these low temperatures and hence the wreck is, is well preserved.
1: And the plan is to leave the ship where it is, right? And is that a controversial plan or is that a, just a practical <laughs> given?
3: Well, I, I mean, for, for once, the, the wreck is protected under, under the Antarctic Treaty as a maritime heritage site. Uh, so nobody is allowed to, to touch it or even uh, remove it. Also, um, I think the ship is in the safest place it can ever be. Where it currently is, it's very hard for somebody to, to do harm to it. Uh, lifting it up, raising it would just be incredible mayhem, destroying a lot of this. Uh, so what this project actually tried is to to kind of raise it digitally. So the amount of data that we, uh, we gathered, we will be able to produce very extremely high-resolution 3D models. And there's currently talk of maybe even producing one of these 3D models and putting it into a, into a museum so that we could get the ship out of the water without getting the actual ship out of the water.
1: Well, finally, I understand that your team found the wreck on the 100th anniversary of Shackleton's funeral, and I wonder as just final thoughts, what would you like us to remember either about the Endurance 22 or about the original Shackleton expedition? Any final thoughts?
3: I think the the main thing to remember about the original Shackleton expedition is this this will to survive and to to go on and even if if the odds sound Terribly bad for you to to go on and and try to to survive, and I think that is really what we can learn from Shackleton to to persist and and endure, and even if it it looks bad, there is a way out, and that's how also Shackleton managed to keep his crew alive, and that's still one of the most remarkable things that that on that expedition everybody, every single person survived the expedition uh, because Shackleton really made this his goal to get all his people out.
1: Well, Christian, what a pleasure it was to talk to you and hear the uh, the account of the discovery firsthand from someone who was there.
2: Christian Catlin, thank you so much for joining
3: us. Thanks a lot for the invitation.
2: Christian Catlin is a CI scientist at the Alfred Wegener Institute, a robotics specialist, and was a member of the expedition Endurance 22 that discovered Shackleton's ship, Endurance. <music> Next, a big picture perspective on the value of exploration. Shackleton's team risked their lives and gave up the comforts of home to go where no humans had ever gone before. Well, what drives us to do such things?
1: This episode is Finding Endurance on Big Picture Science.
0: Listen to The Daily Crunch now, wherever you get your podcasts. That's The Daily Crunch, wherever you get your podcasts.
2: It was as if a time portal had slowly opened when, in early 2022, the search expedition Endurance 22 found the sunken hulk of the Endurance, the wooden ship that had brought Shackleton's 1914 expedition to the Weddell Sea. The loss of their ship initiated a series of marches and voyages in small boats that finally ended with the safe return of all expedition members to England in 1917.
1: Ernest Shackleton's heroic journey from Elephant Island close to Antarctica to South Georgia was reprised by environmental scientist and adventurer Tim Jarvis, and he did it wearing era-appropriate clothing and without using modern
2: equipment. Why would he or anyone put themselves through something like that? Well, Tim's answer is along the lines of the famous mountain climber's phrase, because it was there.
5: I think exploration really is in the DNA of being... Human, I think there's always been that sense of wanting to understand what is on the other side or what lies within us.
2: So we turned to a modern polar explorer for his big picture perspective on what drives us to explore. We also wanted to hear how he reacted when he heard that the ship Endurance had been found. Tim, from sailing the seas to mapping coastlines, I mean, people have taken it upon themselves to explore. What is the value in all of this?
5: Well, look, I think as a species that goes back, depending on where you draw the line, perhaps for, you know, pre-homo sapiens, a million years, you know, it was useful, to put it mildly, useful in inverted commas to have that exploratory sort of spirit, because it was all about hunter-gathering and moving from one place to the next. And if you didn't have a healthy desire to go and find the next resource as a hunter-gatherer, or be, you know, calculating enough to work out how to work as a group to take an animal down in order to provide food, then you weren't going to last very long. So look, I think, I think it's in our evolution to want to just keep traveling, keep moving, keep trying to find new resources, because quite literally in our evolutionary past, that would have meant survival or not.
2: What about 20th century exploration, aside from these uh, attempts to get to the Poles? I mean, there was the Northwest Passage, right? For hundreds of years, people, particularly the British, had been trying to find the Northwest Passage And, uh, you know, they finally found it in 1906. I I think that was Amundsen, actually. 1906 is not that long ago. And now, you know, the Northwest Passage, I mean, it has no commercial value yet. Maybe with more global warming, maybe it will. But, you know, they finally did it. But by the time they did it, nobody seemed to care.
5: Well, you know, the Northwest Passage, it was a physical challenge for the individuals concerned. It was about furthering their reputations, whether they were in the military the Navy or a civilian uh, as far as the Brits were concerned, it was potentially a quicker way to Asia, which, of course, was was a was a cash cow for the British Empire. And so if you could get across the top of Canada and down through the Bering Strait, it was the shortest way there. Reality these days, of course, with climate change is that, you know, the, the Northwest Passage is very easily navigable, as is the Northeast Passage, which goes over the top of Russia, and indeed the, the central route that goes straight through North Pole, where icebreakers now lead a a convoy of uh, container ships or oil tankers and go straight through the 15 foot thickness of ice at the North Pole.
2: Yeah. As long as we're talking about, you know, the benefits of exploration, how would you characterize the benefit, if there is some, of finding the wreck of Shackleton's ship, the Endurance, two miles down? What was your reaction to that?
5: You know, it was really mixed. Uh, I'll have to be honest, I was excited they'd found it. It was a grail quest to try and find it. I know many of the players who've been trying to find her for a long, long time. And so on the one hand, it was this wonderful, sweet success of her being discovered. And there was sure enough endurance written on the stern of the vessel, clear, a hundred years had not dimmed it in any way. And yet there was a hint of sadness because I thought that, you know, there was something nice to know that there's the mystery of wondering where it is, that it's out there somewhere. And. You know, I think Antarctica performs that function in the human psyche, too. You know, it's something big and we, we haven't subjugated it in any way. It's just out there. It's this wonderful wilderness. And there was something about the, the, the endurance that, that played that role in my life. I, I, I kind of like the fact that she hadn't been discovered. Having said that, the fact that she was has brought this, this story to a whole new audience of people. And the story, the real legacy piece, is the journey he undertook to save everyone. And the ship sinking was, was absolutely kind of integral to that. Had she not gone down, there wouldn't have, wouldn't have been that great survival story.
2: So in a, in a sense, it was a good thing for uh,
5: the history of exploration. It's kind of a good news, good news story. And it shows that exploration is alive and well. My goodness, those guys had to work hard over many, many decades to find that needle in the haystack. And I had to eat humble pie because I'd always said, you know, I didn't think they'd find it. And if they did, it would just be driftwood.
2: Tim, you have uh, done more than simply read about Antarctic exploration. You've done some of it yourself, and you tried a reenactment of some of the, if you will, heroic age of polar exploration uh, journeys. Can you tell us a little bit about that?
5: Yes, look, I've, I've, I've done two. I've done plenty of expeditioning in the modern way, Gore-Tex, plastic boots, GPS, sort of cheating, you know, as, as, as early explorers might have seen it. Um, and I I decided to turn the clock back in 2006 and retrace the journey of a guy called Douglas Mawson, who is an Australian from Adelaide, who amongst other things had been accused of eating one of the guys who died in his arms on an expedition that he was the sole survivor of. So I did the trip the same way as him, really to honor him, but in many people's minds, it was a did he need to eat the second guy or not expedition. And I traveled with an increasingly nervous Russian guy uh, but I'm I'm pleased to be able to tell you that he is alive and well and I made it without the need for the extra calories. But I did lose 75 pounds in weight on what was a pretty grueling trip. And the prize for that was to be asked by Symona Shackleton's granddaughter to, of course, retrace uh, Shackleton's double, uh, the James Caird boat journey, followed by a climb through the mountains of South Georgia with the same stuff they had.
2: I mean, you, you tried to, you know, not have any, if you will, anachronisms. I mean, you, you didn't have modern equipment on that trip. Did anything strike you about it that because you knew better than they did, that you knew that it could be different than how you were doing it. What, what was it that struck you? Was it just, you know, the fact that they could do it at all?
5: You know, we retraced his journey as closely as possible to the original. So we rebuilt the, the James Caird. Uh, we didn't have rewriting technology or beds or anything. We all sat on rocks uh, and camera batteries in the base of the boat to film this thing. We wore cotton smocks, woolens, eight lard navigated traditionally using a, a sextant and, and a compass in in big sea state, big, frightening, gnarly sea state. And we had a lot of scrapes in the mountains. And there were so many things that were challenging and the five years to plan the thing. But I think probably one of the most difficult things other than trying to manage team dynamics in very, very stressful circumstances is, is, is something you may not have anticipated, which is, the knowledge that modern equipment exists that would have made that all so much easier and safer and that you're choosing to deprive yourself of using it you know the number of times we were in the middle of a storm in the night unable to light a candle to see the compass to work out which direction to go when a simple electric light or a torch would have just done the job or of course gps uh, and that psychologically was a real burden to bear when things were tough. Why are we why are we depriving ourselves to this extent to bring us closer to what he experienced? And it's easy to say before you go, but when you're there, it's uh, it's a tough one to to psychologically deal with. It's penance, penance, hair <laughs> shirts and uh, suffering.
2: Yes, yes. Tim, to get back to something that we talked about a little earlier, uh, here's something that's bugged me for a long time. It's my impression that many people regard exploration as, you know, a kind of fun thing to do, but not essential. Like climbing Mount Everest today. Clearly, exploration satisfies our curiosity. I mean, in my own line of work, you know, I'm looking for extraterrestrials. Okay, that's exploration. But they will say, well, what's the motivation for that? Why are you spending dollars to do that? And I say curiosity. And they take that as something superficial. Uh, I, I suspect you may have a different take.
5: Yes, I I think, uh, as I've said, I I, I really think, uh, and by the way, I commend your work, but I think, you know, this endless quest, this thirst for knowledge, which is really who we are, which comes from our evolutionary past, needs to burn brightly into modernity. I think the idea of it becoming something that we can kind of do away with because that phase of development is now past is a fallacy. I think it's fundamental to who we are, and the moment we stop seeking out new discoveries and finding out more about our own place in things in the process, that we will we will shrivel and die as a species. I think it's part of who we are.
2: There's also the fact that we tend to remember explorers, right? I mean, you know, if you ask anybody who's been through middle school and they can name at least 10 explorers, nobody remembers physicists or chemists from 500 years ago, but they do remember the explorers. So that suggests that it is something deep in our DNA.
5: (laughs) It's relatable and it's exciting and it's cool. And people think, wow, you know, they're taking physical risks uh, for the benefit of something bigger than them. And I think this is a real wonderful sort of aspirational piece for most people. They want to be an explorer because it's uh, taking this, this great physical risk and probably reputational risk for the benefit of something bigger than them. I think we all want to be part of something that is just bigger than us. It reassures us, but also it excites us that there is something bigger than just what goes on in your own mind and our human society. Tim, do you
2: anticipate a second age of exploration? We still haven't entirely mapped the ocean bottom, let alone even nearby space. Are we maybe just getting started exploration wise?
5: I think we really are. I mean, I think, look, if you ask any two ecologists how many animals and plants we share the the planet with, you'll get very conflicting numbers. So there's there's a start. Most of the ocean floor has not been accurately mapped. Most of the world's mountains actually have not been climbed, if you're inclined to want to do that. And then, of course, there are big ones like space, which, of course, we don't know how to reconcile quantum physics with the laws of relativity and these great big gaps in the system in the form of dark matter and dark energy. So there's a there's a huge one. And so, look, I think um, there's plenty left to explore and I kind of rue the fact that sometimes the message that comes out in more popular media is that it's all been done, because I think far from it.
2: Tim Jarvis, thanks so very much for speaking with
5: us. Really enjoyed it, really enjoyed it. Great to talk to you.
2: Tim
1: Jarvis is an environmental scientist and adventurer. Well, Seth, that brings us to the big picture in the show about Shackleton, the discovery of endurance and exploration. What are some of your thoughts?
2: Well, I got to tell you, Molly, I've been interested in polar exploration for a long time. You know, when I was in my 20s, I was reading books about Shackleton. So this interests me, you know, largely because it's it's such an incredible story. It's an incredible story. But in terms of the big picture here, I mean, I refer back to the comments of, uh, you know, Tim Jarvis, that exploration is in our DNA. I mean... I think a lot of people look at exploration and they think, oh, yeah, well, sure, they're doing it for the money or the power and something. I mean, that was true 500 years ago. Maybe it's still true a little bit today, but still,
1: you know. What is your definition of exploration? I know that in the course of making this show, we've had conversations about what is exploration and what isn't. And I posited the idea that perhaps uh, researching the human genome or other research into science could be considered exploration because there's still so much we don't know, but I'm not sure that you accept that definition.
2: No, I mean, it's not that I reject the definition, but it's not my definition that I can tell you. I mean, you know, maybe that's because in science, I never think of science as exploration myself. I just don't. I mean, to me, it's, it's like trying to answer some interesting questions. And finding something new—that is exploration. You know, when you send a spacecraft past Pluto and and see it for the first time, I, that's exploration to me. But I, I still tie it to geography somehow. Uh, maybe too conservative.
1: And and maybe uh, as Tim said, that there's an element of physical endurance that is required. So it really is physical exploration, where you're taking your body and you're putting it in places that maybe no one had had been before.
2: Yeah. I think that that does play a part of uh, exploration for me. I mean, if Shackleton had been, you know, battling the elements in a temperate climate like, you know, maybe southern Canada, I mean, that it just wouldn't be the same thing to me. So, yeah, I agree with you. I think that it has to be challenging and physically challenging, not just intellectually challenging.
1: Why did you pick southern Canada as your <laughs> example there?
2: Well, I I don't know. Is that I, particularly I
1: probably, mild? Is it a mild place? Or
2: well, there there are places that are milder. I mean, Miami's milder, but <laughs> I don't know. It just came into my mind. I don't know why. So. Well,
1: if anyone has not seen those photos, we really urge you to go take a look at them. The photos of Endurance uh, in its yeah. final resting place at the bottom of the Weddell Sea. They're really yep. it's really quite moving.
2: The guy who took those photos, I believe, was Fred Hurley. He was an expedition member. Not the ones...
1: He didn't take the ones of um, Endurance at the bottom of the sea.
2: Oh, no, 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 no. Okay, sorry. (laughs) If
1: he did, that would be remarkable.
2: No, yeah, you you should see the the photos of the Endurance and compare them with the photos that were made on the expedition, which uh, have been called some of the most incredible photographs ever made of, you know, this kind of exploration. I mean, they were made back in... You know, the 1914, 1915, you had to shoot photos on glass plates. Everything was black and white, of course. And this guy, Fred Hurley, he was an artist. I mean, they weren't just documents. They're real artistry.
1: Well, this show would not be possible without the adventuresome efforts of senior producer Gary Niederhoff and assistant producers Shannon Rose Geary and Brian Edwards. I am executive producer of Big Picture Science, Molly Bentley.
2: Thanks also to financial support from Rena Schulsky david and Sammy David, to NASA and to the William K. Bose Jr. Foundation. Big Picture Science is produced at the SETI Institute, a nonprofit education and research organization whose research efforts spur humankind's exploration of the cosmos. I'm the Institute's senior astronomer, Seth Shostak. Also a big thanks to our listeners and our Patreon supporters.
1: The original music in the show is provided by Dewey DeLay and June Miyake. This episode of Big Picture Science that considered the significance of locating Ernest Shackleton's ship and the value of exploration is called Finding Endurance.